Let Him Go Barefoot is a podcast that dives into all things parenting and education through the lens of mindful awareness. Conversations aim to bring forward patterns, beliefs, and attitudes that shape our expectations and ideas about what it means to raise healthy children. With the blend of science, ancient wisdom, and intuition, we will explore ways to support, nurture, and connect with our growing children while also nurturing and expanding ourselves. I am grateful you are here. Hi, Tava Johnstone. Welcome to the Let Him Go Barefoot podcast. Thank you, Missy. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm so glad we got to finally make this happen. We have a lot to talk about, a lot to cover. I know I gave you a very big list, and I will be sure that we get through these points as best we can um, because I feel like your voice is really strong, very clear, and an important one in this time in terms of education, parental rights, and children with autism and ADHD. Um, and the term that's been used a lot in the last 10 or so years, maybe maybe longer. For me, it feels like it's just happened yesterday, but mm-hmm. it's, it's diversity. <laughs> and I know we'll get into that a little bit more later in the podcast. But to start, if you don't mind giving us a brief summary of your story to now, like where, how did you go from one of the posts you ma- mentioned being kind of a disconnected high school student to, to Instagram? Sure, sure. So that's, that's the long journey. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm like 15 years. How do I sum this up? No. <laughs> um, okay. So yeah, I was a, I was a checked out high school student. Um, I found high school, I found school in general, pretty mind numbing. Um, I was identified as a gifted student in elementary school. And by the time I got to middle school and high school, I found school to be an incredibly scary place. So it was a mixture of, of actual terror because I was being bullied and there were gang members and there were like race riots um, happening between um, the black student population and the Hispanic student population. And it was just, I mean, my campus was like, they were war zones mm-hmm. um, among teen gang members. And it was, it was really scary. I, I came from a very peaceful, nonviolent family. I was raised with respect, respectful parents. Um, I had just truly never seen anything like it in my life, like was witnessing violence for the first time in my life in person, as opposed to like on a movie. Um and so I just started to, I started to check out. I mean, now that I'm a therapist and I have some education on um, trauma, I, I really think that it was a traumatizing experience for mm. me. Um, mm-hmm. We know that kids who witness violence in the home, they are uh, affected clinically. It's not, it's, it, it's not a light or neutral matter. And so witnessing violence like that, I really think that it, it, it did leave me with some trauma symptoms. Um, plus I, I do identify myself as neurodivergent and I know we'll get more into that, but I have some sensory differences, some, um, you know, attentional focusing differences. And I just found the whole climate of school with its social overwhelm. My high school had 3000 kids for context. Mm. 
Um, mm. It was built for 1500 but for some reason we had 3000 And this is in California, correct? Southern California, less than 10 miles from the beach, middle class family, um, not like a, you know, it wasn't a lower SES neighborhood or anything like that. Um, but yes, so we had race riots, uh, social overwhelm with 3,000 kids, and I just found myself really checking out. Um, mm. Thankfully, I am pretty socially adept for, you know, about three hours a day. Um, <laughs> and I, I had, <laughs> no, I'm, you know, I'm kidding, but I had, I had a solid group of friends. So that was really, that was a protective factor for me. Um, and really, I think helped me not go too far off the deep end, but I had a solid group of friends and, um, but I just, you know, I was sleeping in class. I was ditching any chance that I could. I had the typical 1990s, both working parents. My parents worked very hard and, you know, I know that they did everything that they could for us, Right. but they were not home. <laughs> and so, and we all started driving we all started driving the day we turned 16, pretty much. And um, so we just ditched school whenever we could. And we would go back to one of our houses and get into trouble. And um, that was that was high school for me. I almost didn't graduate. Um, but thankfully, I did. And my senior year, um, I was getting my hair done at a salon by my, my own hairdresser. And I think I was maybe talking to him about how much I hated school and I was directionless and I had no plan of going to college. Like, why would anyone choose to go to school? I thought that was the craziest thing in the world. I, I couldn't wait to have my freedom. And he told me about cosmetology school. Oh, wow. Because, yeah, I, that's another thing I was doing in class in high school is I was doing my makeup. If I wasn't sleeping or ditching, I was doing my makeup. Um, and so I had an interest in like art and, you know, hairstyling and makeup and things like that. So he told me about the Vidal Sassoon Academy, which he described as the Harvard of beauty schools. And I was sold and, um, it was only 10 months. And then I could be on my way to the independent free life that so many of our teens want. Right. You know, they, they want to feel useful. This is a natural stage of development. Um, so I sold it to my parents. And my parents, they were, you know, so the Vidal Sassoon Academy being the Harvard of cosmetology schools, it was expensive for back then. Mm. And I did have to kind of sell it to my parents. But thankfully, my parents had the resources or were able to secure the resources and although they were absolutely, you know, horrified at the fact of me not going to college, they agreed to pay for cosmetology school. And just interrupt me if you need to, because I can just keep going on and on. <laughs> no, no, no. This is great. It's good. And I, I do have, I will ask you like about that post again okay. in a minute, but keep going. Okay. Yes. So they had the resources you got there and. Yeah. So um, it was a dream. I got to go to. The Vidal Sassoon Academy, which was in Santa Monica, and um, all the teachers, 90% of the teachers were English, and, you know, because it's a British company, and they all had accents, mm. and <laughs> I was just in absolute heaven, absolute heaven. I just felt like, 
wow, like here I am at an academy that was very structured and, and very, um, had a directive teaching model where it's top down. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it had the, the hands-on piece. So we had theory and then we had practice and it was, it was kind of strict. So if you think of like your stereotypical sort of British, like stiff upper lip, um, a very clear hierarchy between like teacher and pupil. Mm. We had that. We, we did have that much of our day, but for some reason, because it was um, intrinsically motivated, I wanted to be there. It was aligned with my interests and it was short term. It was 10 months. You could see the light at the end of the tunnel. It wasn't this 14 year prison sentence, um, we, like I was able to dig deep and, and really get through it. And I, I absolutely loved it. So, um, I, I graduated from the Vidal Sassoon Academy just on top of the world. And they really instill in you this like Ivy league sort of sense of pride. Hmm. And I, I had that. And, and, it, and it benefited me. I took that with me into my career as a hairdresser. And I was lucky to fall under the guidance of um, a mentor, John Aguilar was his name. And he was also a graduate of Vidal Sassoon. And he just took me under his wing and really um, helped me grow into a very successful hairdresser who worked for herself and was booked months in advance and made a lot of money and had a lot of fun. And, um, it was that true, like kind of apprentice model that, you know, John Taylor Gatto speaks of where the teens need to feel useful in their communities. Yeah. And that's, I I had that. Yeah. Well, and that's the one thing I wanted to point out on one of your posts that you did on, let me see what date that was May 28th. And Uh I loved how you highlighted those specific skills and, and, um, experiences because you said you felt useful, you had autonomy, you had agency, you had responsibility, and you also were nurturing your interest. And when all of those things come together, that is how we learn the best. And even though, like you said, you felt like the the structure from someone maybe on the outside looking in would feel that was maybe a bit hierarchical or even rigid, it, it didn't matter at that point to you because you knew what the goal was you also had buy-in and it was yes. internal motivation, which is the key for yes. any learning and any yes. sort of direction that kids take and, and, and adults as well, you know, so we do it as adults, yeah. but then we don't think the kids are the same. And I think we're learning so much now, of course, the fact that our brains as different as they are, there's some psychological uh, similarities for us across the board and that agency Absolutely. and buy-in are so important. So, Having that experience, I know that there was some time that you, you spent there and then what, what drew you, I guess, to social work and then switching gears? Sure, sure. So, um, so I had a solid 10 year career as a hairdresser and then 2009, which we all can remember was, you know, the recession, right? So the economy. Yeah. Yeah. So the economy really changed. It took a hit 
And all of a sudden, my my clients, their tabs, their bills went from 200 bucks a pop plus a maybe 20 to, f- not 50, but maybe a $20 tip on top of that to, um, Tava, I'm so sorry, I can only afford the mm. haircut today. And so then that took my their tabs down to 50 bucks with maybe a $5 tip. So it was a drastic mm-hmm. cut in my income, drastic. And I was um, in my, you know, later 20s and I was having those, you know, maybe developmental typical feelings of like, where am I going? Am I going to get married? Am I going to have a family? Like, I want to do those things. I want to, I want that in my life. Um, and this huge change in the economy really had me reflecting on, well, what am I going to do, do next for my career? Um, so I moved to the city. I moved to Los Angeles, which is where I'm from, but I was raised in a smaller town, but I moved back to LA. I did hair in a salon in West Hollywood and, um, decided to go to graduate school. I guess I should rewind a bit before you go to, you can go to graduate yeah. school. You do have to get a bachelor's. So yeah, I forgot to tell that, that part. So basically while I was a hairdresser, um, I was doing so well financially that I was able to just work a solid three days a week. And because I come from a very college, uh, mm-hmm. positive family, um, I had that instilled in me that it's just kind of something that you do. You, you, you go to college and, and that kind of makes mm-hmm. you complete in a way. And I, I did truly have curiosity about the world and I wanted to learn more. So I started to go to a community college as a hairdresser, and then I transferred to the University of California, Santa Barbara, still as a hairdresser. Um, So I had that under my belt by the time I was thinking, oh gosh, do I need a career Mm. pivot right now? So I I pivoted and, and decided I wanted to be a therapist because... Being a hairdresser is a lot like being a therapist. Therapists maybe don't <laughs> want to admit that because they are, <laughs> because there's kind of this elite, this like elitism that we have, you know, with our graduate degrees and all of our training. And, but the reality is hairdressers do a lot mm-hmm. of what therapists do. Um, and so I thought, you know what, let me just legitimize this a little bit more and let me become an actual therapist. Like, let's try that. So I went to graduate school um, for social work because my mom had a a master's in social work and was a licensed clinical social worker. And in her opinion, that was the best path to becoming a therapist. I I disagree with that opinion now, Um, but it, it is the opinion that she had and that I was influenced by. So I went and got a master's in social work. I did everything I needed to do to then get my clinical hours and my clinical license. And um, here I am. I've, I've been a therapist for about 10 years. And during the pandemic, I was forced to kind of pivot because we yeah. all left the office. I was seeing kids. Yeah. So we all left the office. I was seeing kids on Zoom. It's impossible to see kids on Zoom. And so I pivoted to um, coaching and consulting and providing online education for parents. 
And Instagram was birthed kind of among all of that. Instagram was birthed in my desire to do advocacy as well. Where did you see kids? Did you see them in their homes? Did they come to you or did you go into the schools or was it a combination of all of those things? It was definitely a combination of all of those things. So I've seen kids um, in their home as a foster care social worker. I've seen kids in hospital settings, inpatient psych for adolescents. I've seen kids um, in the schools as a contracted employee um, on uh, IEP teams, about 70 IEP teams. And then I've also seen the main, uh, the general population as well. Okay. And I've seen kids in private practice. Okay. Now, one thing I want to kind of clarify, if we can, is the, the actual work of a social worker. I think mm-hmm. some people misunderstand what that role serves. Mm-hmm. And so can you clear that up for us? Absolutely. And it makes sense people would be confused because we have had difficulty with title protection. Mm. Title protection is a huge issue for um, the United States social workers and specifically for my state of California. So um, the kind of social worker that I am is I have a master's in social work and I have a clinical license that allows me to do therapy. So I'm considered a licensed clinical social worker and a psychotherapist. Okay. Now, some social workers, so the social work field is incredibly broad and some social workers uh, just have a bachelor's and they might do case management type things um, in almost any kind of human services field or child welfare field. They'll do case management. Um, They might work at hospitals. But once you, when you get into that master's level you know, the salary goes up and you just have more opportunities. And then when you get a clinical license, you have even more doors open for you and and you're really at the top salary. But unfortunately, the the term social worker is used for just anybody off the street who goes and works for child welfare or what some people might know as child protective services. Right. And I think that's definitely the case here in North Carolina. It feels like social worker equates to case management and case management as in really dealing with a lot of administrative things and checking on children who've been placed in foster care. That, that to me is kind of the, the image I get when social work is, is mentioned. So I like that you're able to explain it further and share that it's so much broader than just that one part of it. Right. And, and, and what you described, I mean, those are, those are our roots as a profession. Those are definitely our roots as child welfare. Um, but sometime, I think it was maybe in the eighties, we started to want to be taken more seriously and want to work clinically. So that's how we evolved into the psychotherapy realm and the, the more clinical practice realm. But the word social worker is, it's just a very broad sort of catch all term for the many different things we can do. And actually people like myself, we don't usually use the term social worker. We'll usually say that we're an LCSW, licensed clinical social worker, but because my state has the most ridiculous, rigid regulations, um, when I am on Instagram and when I am doing anything other than serving my clinical clients, 
I really, I'm not supposed to use the term LCSW. Okay. So that's why I don't usually, you, you won't usually see my credentials when I'm on Instagram because I'm not doing that kind of work. Yeah. When I see that with a lot of professors and other people who have big social media followings, they will say, I'm doing this as a personal thing. This is not associated with my, you know, or my yes. affiliation with the university or whatever. So I, I get that. I understand that there needs to be that designation and the difference yeah. for legal reasons. So, um, but as far as the work in the work you did clinically with children, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of your posts, you talk about the therapist perspective and the things that you have seen in terms of what children need for mental health, what families need and special considerations. And, you know, one post you have, it's actually pinned, it's the July 3rd post. um, And you quoted Peter Gray and you said, the rise in anxiety and depression among school age children long predates COVID and even predates popular use of smartphones. And that's a quote by Peter Gray. Mm -hmm. For your caption, you say, we need more, we don't need more therapists. We need secure families. We don't need safe educational, I'm sorry. We need safe educational environments. We need children who are free to learn, explore their interest and play in parentheses, you put hard, rather than being micromanaged at a full-time sedentary job. And I like that post for several reasons. It, highlights the fact that I feel like our society has tried to come up with excuses for why kids are suffering. Mm -hmm. And some of those excuses are, we need more therapists. We need more money. Schools need more money. Schools need more resources. And we're not looking at the root issues. And in this post, I feel like you nailed two of them, which is secure families and safe educational environments. And I'll go further and say just safe environments, period. And by safe, I don't mean that they're cushioned and somebody's following around them with a pillow and they never have any challenges. Safe, in my mind, is adults who understand the importance of emotional safety Mm -hmm. and participation that allows children to really thrive. So what would you say are some good definitions for a safe environment and how would you, how would you define one in terms of like an educational environment? Sure. Um, okay. So I struggle with the word safety. I, I'll just admit that for your listeners. Mm-hmm. I, I do struggle with the word safety because I know it's being so overused today. Um, and people are like weaponizing it to shut down, uh, um, honest, constructive criticism, um, honest, honest exploration of ideas. They say that's not safe. You're making other people not safe. And, you know, it's part of this safetyism that I think it's Jonathan Haidt talks about, um, that the safetyism, not only does it hurt the kids, but it hurts any, it hurts honest conversation. So I struggle with the word safe, but, um, on on its most basic level i mean we need to be we need to to be honest here that the schools are truly not safe i mean in the most mm-hmm. in the most elementary definition of the of the of the term i mean i was on i was on school campuses with with actual race riots um 
you know, the, the bullying is so intense, especially for autistic and ADHD kids. And then, I mean, I don't mean to be like, I don't mean to be blunt, but the kids are watching like mass murders happening on, on school campuses. Like, how can you learn in that kind of environment? It's, to me, it feels truly unsafe in, a, in the most basic definition of the term, like true physical safety. Um, and when I was a therapist on those campuses and we had constant active shooter drills and I, I saw what that did to my clients and I felt what that did to me. And here I am mm -hmm. an adult psychotherapist and I could barely handle it. I was having vicarious trauma symptoms. I was running off campus as soon as I saw my last client, rather than stay and do my notes, I was running off campus to to hopefully avoid this, this mass shooter that was going to come onto our campus. Right. So when I speak about safety, I'm sometimes referring to that, that like many of us, even if the, the overall relative statistics are still low, maybe kind of like a plane crash, it still feels just so anti-human that, that kids can be murdered at school. Like it just, I just cannot even grasp that. Um, yeah. So I do, I struggle with that. Like the, the campuses are just truly not safe. And then as far as, um, you know, if we extend the definition or, or, or broaden the definition a little bit, I think that school campuses are just, they are developmentally misaligned. Mm -hmm. The kids are, are caged puppies and we would never tolerate that for an actual puppy. We would never expect a puppy to be caged in a kennel all day and then be well. And yeah. I see that the typical school environment, I'm talking, you know, run-of-the-mill public school, I see it as uh, like a kennel for kids. Okay. Uh, and I, I, just, I just think we're not serving them developmentally. Right. Well, tell me what you think would be better for children in terms of serving them developmentally, because I'm, I mean, I'm with you. I, I believe that our school environments are environmental mismatch mm -hmm. for so many children. Yeah. And, you know, we tend to, as a society, focus on the kids that are doing okay mm -hmm. by saying, well, it works for these, but that's the crux of so many problems is that yes, it can work for some and some actually do okay. Mm -hmm. But then look at all the ones that aren't. And, you know, I, I see it as like canaries in a coal mine that yeah. we, we have to pay attention to the ones where they're suffering. And I served on IEP groups. I supported families going into IEP meetings and mm. I saw the, the distress of the children, but also the distress of the staff and the parents. And it just felt like everybody was upset. Yeah. And, and I thought to myself, all of this because we say we have to send kids to school. Mm -hmm. It's a self-created problem yeah. that we've all signed up for to say that, yes, we have to do it. We have to stick with it no matter what. And in doing that, we've created all of these spinoff problems yeah. that we continue to just add things to, to think we're going to fix them. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you a great example. I had a conversation with a longtime friend yesterday who has been working in public schools for 28 years. She's an artist. Um, and she was responsible for 800 children. Oh my gosh. As an art teacher. Wow. And they just took her art teacher assistant away oh. because of funding issues, because of 
just all the things. And, um, and last year at her last, her last, um, year, school year, there was a lot of stress and a lot of, uh, really unfortunate spiraling, I guess. And, um, a decision was made that she was going to leave art. Um, and the other piece of it is that they were adding these programs into the public schools to support kids who were having behavior problems or who were stressed out. And so to me, it feels like a constant, like let's add more things to help the children when nobody wants to look at the environment. Yep. It's almost like throwing logs on a fire and saying you're putting the fire out. And I'm like, no, yeah. you don't add more mindful classes in the mindfulness, <laughs> in the mindfulness idea in a stressful yeah. environment. Yeah. It's like, no, it's so, <laughs> so rigid. It's so yeah. mis, mis, uh, yeah. Misdirected. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of giving kids support in a classroom setting or in a school setting, I understand where that comes from. But if the setting itself is uncomfortable and there's this energy hanging in it that makes the kids just feel not at home or comfortable mm-hmm. or there's this impending doom all the time, yeah. then there's no way their brains are going to be primed and open and excited and accepting of learning anything yep. except for survival. and. Yep. So, you know, you've done a lot of um, writing about helping children and helping families. And, and in that post, you know, you said we need secure families. And can you elaborate on that and what that means to you? Sure. Um, gosh, I just, I, I come from the framework that children and their parents are a unit, The family is a unit. We're not going to have healthy children without having healthy parents. And we're not going to solve this children's mental health crisis if we're looking away from the home and and pretending that that the home plays no part in this. and so, you know, what what I what I mean when I say secure families, families who are nonviolent, mm-hmm. families where the parents are not stressed about how they're going to feed their children, um, if they're going to be able to pay for their mortgage or their rent, um, neighborhoods that are safe, so we can actually tap into that, you know, Peter Gray and Jonathan Haidt. Uh, mentality of letting the kids do what they're developmentally supposed to be doing, which is being out playing, um, self-directed play, taking some risks. This, this all comes back to the family and, and, and safe neighborhoods. And I think that when we have a sort of blase attitude about the family, and I'm talking about like, um, you know, maybe the security of the marriage, uh, maybe the the psychological well-being of the parents i think that we're really we have a blind spot and mm-hmm. i i know that it's it, it can be unpopular to talk about these things particularly in liberal and progressive culture which is where i'm from and where i live um because it's viewed as being old fashioned mm. you know having a a secure family like a, family values, if you will, it's viewed as being like conservative. Uh, Where I come from in California, it's an insult for something to be 
conservative or from one political side or religious or anything like that. But the reality is from a child development perspective, take religion mm-hmm. and politics out of it. We know that children need a, a, a strong parent child bond. They need nonviolent families. They need parents who are not, um, insecure and hostile. They need parents who are hopefully um, loving and committed and and can provide structure and and nurture and flexibility. And they need safe neighborhoods. They need to be playing and moving their bodies. And so, you know, school is, I think that school is one part of it. But the idea of pouring more and more resources into school-based therapists and school-based programs for mental health, I just see it as an expensive Band-Aid, an ineffective, ineffective, expensive Band-Aid on a gaping wound. And I see it as a way to just further strengthen government bureaucracies. In, right. in, instead of putting the power back into families and communities, mm-hmm. that's, that's yeah. how I see it. Yeah. Well, and you know, <clears throat> you mentioned the thing about the politics and the religion, and I find that the conversations do get extremely divisive and an either or mm-hmm. when I try to look at it from the perspective of what what does our experience in neuroscience say? What does our experience in psychology say? What do we know creates a very solid foundation for any human? Mm -hmm. And we know it's consistent caregivers who are emotionally attuned and who are aware of them, their own faults and also are willing to accept that they have some growing to do. You know, it's not this authoritarian over demanding and coercive and punishment. We, We know that that does not bode super well. Right. Um, and we have, you know, we have the CDC's adverse child, is it, what's it called? The adverse, ACEs. yeah, ACEs, the um, adverse childhood ad- experiences. Yes. And, and that's what, I mean, that's thousands and thousands of reports mm-hmm. to show us very clearly that the higher the adverse experiences are in childhood, the more likely children are to have mental health concerns and are at risk for substance abuse later in life. So when we have an environment like our school settings where kids are experiencing adverse, having adverse experiences in a school setting, Mm -hmm. it it is, it just begs the question, like, why do we think, why do we think that, that we need to just keep doing the same thing and not, not changing that environment? Um, but again, I, I believe in the free market, which says people who have the ability and the willingness and the resources to create something new will, mm-hmm. and people who want to participate will. Yeah. And the free market is speaking, and we're watching that unfold yeah. right before our very eyes. And the fact that we have thousands and thousands of teachers leaving the public school system, mm-hmm. leaving teaching to start their own programs, to start their small communities. Um, And then, you know, what you're doing, too, in terms of providing options for parents who are interested and curious about homeschooling, but maybe feel nervous about taking that step. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what you've created and why why you created it 
and what was sort of the impetus with your own parenting and your own views on education and kind of how that all evolved. Sure, sure. Um, that's a really great question. And, and I'm actually going to start a little bit further back from my own parenting, just a, just a teeny bit. But, you know, my mom's today, my mom says she wishes she would have pulled me out of school and homeschooled. But she didn't know that other options existed. And so that's, that is kind of, I think that that is one of the things that ground my work. I really love and respect my mom um, and her, her views on things. And I want parents to know that we do not have to settle for the status quo. We have options even though they might seem countercultural, even though you might not identify as um, a religious person who is, you know, maybe anti-government or whatever. You know, people have these stereotypes about homeschoolers. Mm -hmm. And some of Mm -hmm. the stereotypes are true. And and some, some of them we embrace with pride, right? But to be a homeschooler does not require you to look like a certain kind of family. You can homeschool now, you are capable, you can do it as a working mom, you can do it as a single mom, you can do it if your child has um, learning differences, um, you know, spirited, autism, ADHD. Like what I want parents to know is they do not have to wait for the government to fix this massive problem. Why sacrifice more years of their child's life, education, and well-being when they don't have to? Mm -hmm. And I, I am of the opinion that it's better to not even start down that path. And and that is what I did with my own daughter. But you know, I can't I can't tell people what to do. I very much try to check my my influence the best that I can and really put it into the parents' hands and say, you know, if you are unhappy, this is what exists and what can help you make some positive changes in your child's life. But I cannot tell you what to do or that you should do it, but it exists if you're interested. With my own child, because of my own experiences as a public schooler, in this same community and having worked in the public schools in this community, there was absolutely no way that I was going to be sending her. Zero Mm -hmm. chance. And when she was born, she came out a spirited, a spirited, (laughs) bright, beautiful, very active girl. Mm -hmm. Um, The pediatrician, I'm not even kidding, called it at five days old she's like, she's going to be an early walker because of the way she was kicking her legs. And not only was she an early walker, she was an early everything and, and just, just so full of life, just a talker, a walker, so curious about the world. And she was learning so beautifully from zero to five Mm -hmm. that her dad and I were like, why on earth would we tamper with this? Like, let's just kind of keep going with how she's been learning. She loves learning. We just need to make sure that the environment is interesting and stimulating enough 
and that there are, you know, a few um, uh, mentoring, loving, safe adults close enough by. But this child, she's ready. She's a learner. Mm-hmm. She, we do not need to go now shove her into some government box and think that they can do a better job. There's just no way. So um, she did a few years of a play-based outdoor um, preschool through a local church that I we were not affiliated with. But another therapist friend of mine, she swore by it. She's like, the the term play-based is not just lip service. They actually do play self-directed mm-hmm. all day. Not all day. It was like three and a half, four hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, I had to send her somewhere because I, I needed to start getting some clinical hours. So she was doing outdoor self-directed play in the mud for a few years at a local, just very sweet, gentle preschool. Um, and I remember as she was turning five, I remember asking the school's director, can't you guys open just a school? <laughs> because if you if you opened a few elementary grades, like I would stay, we would stay here. Like I, I love this place. Can't we continue on? And they're like, no, so sorry. Like we don't want to be an official school because it comes with all kinds of, you know, regulations mm-hmm. and stuff. Right. So I, um, her dad and I looked around. We looked at a few Montessori's. We looked, I even considered a, a private Christian school. But ultimately, and then, of course, we entertained some really cool hippie private schools that were just financially out of reach. And so we decided, you know what, we're not doing any of this. We're going to homeschool and we're going to connect with other homeschools in our community and make this happen. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so now she's... um... Third, second grade? She's in the second grade age range. She's eight and she's, she's going into third grade um, this fall. Yeah. Okay. And so having that experience, recognizing that there were options, but some of them were out of your reach, but also the fact that you still needed to work. And that is a question mark that a lot of people have like, well, well, how can you homeschool and work? Mm -hmm. And so you saw an opportunity to help parents see what was possible. And is that kind of the impetus for getting this, your course together to help people? Like one of the things I know on your course, it says to unlearn the homeschool myths. And that did make me laugh because it was like, you don't have to be a religious conspiracy theorist to homeschool, but you can if you want to be. <laughs> you can if you want to. <laughs> you know, I, I have some of those leanings myself, but I don't, I don't fit that mold, um, you know, in, in, in its entirety. But yeah, that was, that was the impetus to me putting this course together was um, I wanted to map it out for parents really step by step how they can do this, how they can go from like being curious to official and, and how they can do it as a working parent or a parent who maybe doesn't yeah. have a career, but simply they need breaks. Maybe they struggle with some depression or anxiety or ADHD or any of the other things that make us, par- us we parents, really need maybe a little bit more time for ourselves than the next parent. Um, so I'm, my course maps it out for parents, literally how to do this. And it's coming from a place of parents, I get it because I am you. I'm one of you. And I've made it happen. I, I am a resourceful person. Like I'm creative. I can dig deep and, and 
put things together myself in a way that aligns with my values. But my number one why was we are not doing that over there, which meant public school. So how are we going to create anything other than that, that feels good enough? And so that's what I help parents do in my course is I help them find community, lean on their community. And it's really a non-traditional way of homeschooling that I think I'm, I'm teaching, I guess you can say. Mm-hmm. And then when you're tapping into something that's needed. Yeah, I, I feel I am. I, I, you know, parents, most of us, especially mm-hmm. in more expensive states, we do work and it's not really an option. And um, maintaining employment, it, it, it's something that we kind of need to do, although we also have these educational values and we don't want to send our kids to traditional schools. So what is there for us? And that's kind of where I, I help parents. And then also another focus of my course is I draw from the field of positive psychology and I help parents bring in the elements of positive psychology that we know are evidence-based for um, producing joyful, contented humans and kids. Well, Mm. humans, you know, kids are humans, but you know what I'm saying. Adults (laughs) and kids. Um, Yeah. So I draw from that field and help parents bring in those principles into their homeschool so it's really intentional from a mental health perspective. Yeah. Well, and I think that's for me as um, my background, as you, as you know, is in psychology and I went into special education several years after I graduated college. So part of my motivation was the psychology of growing up and development. And what does it mean to be a healthy, happy person? What does it mean to be content? And, you know, I think somebody, sometimes people misunderstand this, this idea of, happy as in, you know, 24 seven joy. And it's not that because nobody lives that way. That's impossible. It's more about contentment. It's more about seeking joy more often than, than not. And, um, so, and the fact that it, it is a foundational, I feel like a foundational goal because why not? You know, I mean, there's plenty out there to make us feel frustrated and worried and scared and nervous, yeah. but when we can get clear on our, why like you were, it makes it more possible and doable. You can kind of see clearly. Well, one of the things I wanted to to talk about too is that you have your newsletter that you mentioned some tips about feeling useful is protective. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. I love that because it goes back to what we talked about earlier about feeling useful and having autonomy and you know there's buy-in. And, the, and I wrote about recently teenagers being feeling useful and knowing that they have meaning or where where can they fit into the culture, but also what skills do they have that they can contribute and give back. And the the reason why that feels so good is because the basic, I think one of the basic human needs is we need to know that we're needed. And I think that there's plenty of people out there who are doing things that they feel are finding them a space, but it's not necessarily in the most healthy way. So when we do something that's useful, when we help our kids find something that's useful, that's healthy, it is protective. And so if you don't mind, can we talk about that a little bit? Like the tips that you gave, um, so I will read them out. I don't know if you have them in front of you, but no, I don't. okay, well I'll read them and we can just kind of go through them. So one of them is to give your child responsibility and something connected to their interest. 
um, which I love that because I'm such a fan of self-directed education. And when kids have an interest and they go for it, it gives them such a deep sense of meaning and purpose. So like, for example, you said if they ask for the pet fish or the puppy, you require direct involvement with its daily care. So can you elaborate a little bit on that? Like what, what has been your experience there? Sure. Um, that, that was taken from my own family life. Um, definitely. So yeah, you know, my daughter wanted the puppy, she wanted the fish and I really didn't need extra creatures to be taken care of and, and keeping alive, to be honest. My plate was pretty full, but we got that pandemic pup like a lot yeah. of people did. <laughs> um, so yeah, so you know, she has to be directly involved with it in their cares. She, she helps feed the dog. Um, his name's Mac. She feeds Mac. She fills his water. She brushes him. Um, when he wants to go out in the backyard, he'll give us a particular kind of bark and she'll let him out. And she feeds her fish twice a day. Um, and yeah, you know, I think it's, I think that as you said, People in general, including kids, need to feel useful to be, to have that 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 deep sense of of well being, and it starts young, and I I wanted to instill those things in my daughter. So that is something I recommend if your if your child asks for a pet because they're interested in in that animal, then they really should have some responsibility connected to that pet. It's such an easy built in way in the family. Mm -hmm. And I do find that to rise to the occasion, especially when we're honest with them, you know, we're open about the fact that that is a lovely idea. But at this point in time in my life, here's what I have going on. And this is why it would feel stressful to me or overwhelming to me. Therefore, you know, and and having that conversation. And I find that even the youngest kids can really understand. And of course, developmentally, sometimes they might say yes to something. They're not quite sure what that looks like. So they might need a little extra help and encouragement, but you know, when they get a little bit older, especially I really have seen that play out. So, so well. So the second thing you said is get them involved in uh, volunteer work in the summer with an organization that is connected to their interest. Mm -hmm. And I know that I've seen that for my own children play out in a way that it just allows them to shine. And, it's true. you know, when kids are able to shine in something that they're good at and that they feel they are participating into something that's greater than them, mm-hmm. it gives that real sense of satisfaction. And that is part of mental health. It's true. Um, yeah. And then the third thing was allow your child to help with meal preparation appropriate for their developmental stage. And I love that you made that very clear (laughs) Um, because sometimes these statements can be taken, you know, in a blanket way. That's like, Oh, well, you know, if you want to feel good, you've got to help, but they're like three and they don't understand. (laughs) Right. Um, Right. And then it says name specifically how their role was important and give them specific praise Mm -hmm. for the task, but don't ever do the praise. So can you elaborate on that? Yes, I will. I will. So I know that in, um, you know, I'm I'm I've I've been part of the various parenting circles, and I'm I'm familiar with the different theories on praise, mm-hmm. and I know that that praise can be un can be overdone, and it can also be done wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, o- over praising and blanket praising of you know good job, good job, good job. It's not good for it's it's not good for children. Mm-hmm. It's not good for their um, sense of self, for their confidence, for their intrinsic. Mm-hmm motivation. Um, we can also kind of like discredit ourselves, like make ourselves seem a little bit 
untrustworthy when we're just blanketly good jobbing everything. Um, I just, I know that that is not good for optimal child development. And then on the other side, on the flip side, as a child therapist in the field of mental health, there are certain types of children that really do well from very specific, what I call labeled praise, where you are telling them exactly um, what you appreciated. Mm -hmm. And this can be helpful for children with ADHD because children with ADHD, there have been some studies done showing that they are corrected versus um, complimented or praised about like maybe 10 to one. Oh, wow. Wow. Yes. So that number is not an exact figure, but just roughly speaking about 10 to one. And do you know, I mean, I'm sure you know what that does to a child's sense of self is just tragic Mm. and um, influences like um, a self-hatred, a lack of belief in self, Um, shame, learned helplessness. I mean, all of the things that we do not want for children and and things that that harm their development, um, not being being, uh, praised enough in the right kind of ways really hurts certain types of kids. ADHD kids are one. And other types of kids where labeled praise can be beneficial is kids who come into therapy for like true behavioral problems where it's rise to the level of clinical significance and things are really not good in the home. So there's a therapeutic model called parent-child interaction therapy. And I don't endorse all of that model, but there's part of that model that I think is really valuable and it's the attachment building phase. And in the attachment building phase, we teach parents how to use labeled praise in a way that strengthens the parent-child bond. Mm. And that is what I get behind. Right. I just think about it in terms of my experiences in the classroom, but then also working with kids with ADHD. And, you know, it makes me think of like the love languages. You know, there's certain people that love gifts or activities done for them, you know, um, service. And then there's people who like to be appreciated and I kids fall into that as well. And so knowing that they've done something, not in a way of like, I need to satisfy my parent, but it's more of, they recognized me, they saw me, you know, and that's different than these blanket, very basic, good job, good job, good job. Cause then it becomes just background noise. It doesn't even have any meat to it anymore and a meaning. Yeah. Yeah. It feels kind of like, eh, you know, like it's my parents exactly. in robot mode. So mm-hmm. that very specific, thank you for loading the dishwasher that helped, that helped everything go so much more smoothly tonight. I appreciate your input, you know, and yeah, being very specific about it, not because you're trying to manipulate them. And I think that's probably where the concern of praise came in along the lines was that people uh-huh. felt like it was being used to manipulate the kid to do that behavior over and over again because the parent was trying to control. So mm-hmm. there's a difference between praising to control versus praising to actually benefit the child's self-worth. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. You know, And I think that's an important distinction to make. So I like that definitely attachment building phase. And, and that's, that's neat. So I'm, I'm going to look into that more. I'm, I'm not familiar with that actually. Yeah. It's an, it's an evidence-based therapy for truly for kids who have 
really troubling behaviors who are on the verge of, um, you know, certain diagnoses that are highly stigmatized, like uh, ODD, Mm. um, children from severe trauma backgrounds where their behavior makes sense considering what they went through, but it's also not an okay behavior that can continue. Right. So, um, yeah. And I, I also like what you were saying about specific or labeled praise. It, it's also just part of like a healthy relational dynamic. Mm. We, we like, we like to be seen by say like our spouses, you know, we like to be appreciated for things that we did for our partners. And it's, it's just kind of part of teamwork. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. And I think that if it can be reframed that way and seen more as how would you treat your friend who did something that, you know, you noticed, it's the same kind of idea. Exactly. So I can't let you go before we get into neurodiversity. And that's sure. (laughs) So my understanding of neurodiversity is that Mm -hmm. it was originally created as a term to define our diverse brains, like biodiversity. Like we don't Mm -hmm. have everybody, we don't have a normal brain. There's no such thing as like a normal brain. And maybe, um, and then it became kind of a movement that it became a way to describe certain people. And so what has been your perception of that and experience of it? And how do you feel like that word is helpful or maybe even confusing? Like what, what would be the best kind of way to consider it moving forward? And sure. Um, and just for reference too, I'll, I'll just alert people to the fact that you and I both had read the article on the free press written by a mother who have two pretty severely autistic children. And mm-hmm. that was brought up the terminology and how sometimes words are changed to soften the reality. And in doing that, we actually are making it more difficult for people who are suffering and mm-hmm. um, kind of like the, oh, my child is magical and we're just going to sprinkle these soft words to overlook the really difficult parts of right. working with them and, and the, the the issues that they have. So right. kind of explain to me if you don't mind. And, and I will say one more thing. One of the articles you wrote on your blog is called, Is My Child Disordered? And I like how you said um, a disorder is something a person has and not something that they are. And also mm-hmm. that a person's functioning is disordered, not the person. Sure. Yes. Okay. So I'm coming at this from, from my, um, perspective and experienced as a licensed clinician who is able to diagnose children. Um, and okay. So my business is actually named neurodiversity parenting and I 100% am behind the definition that you described a minute ago about, you know, biodiversity and how um, it's just, it, it really is part of life. Like we all have different brains and that for me, what it means is that people should be treated with dignity and respect and and um, we should try to uh, bring out their strengths and look to their strengths, no matter what is going on with them. And I think that that is a very uh, benign and useful uh, use of the term neurodiversity. On, on my email signature, I have a quote from Maya Angelou, and it was like, uh, young people need to understand that in diversity, there is beauty and there is strength. Mm. And and that is why I named my business Neurodiversity Parenting was like, I was going to help parents 
um, see the beauty and strength in their own children's differences while also helping them work through their challenges. Mm. Now, what I've seen happen is we've gone from that understanding of the word neurodiversity into there's something called the neurodiversity um, paradigm and the neurodiversity movement. And then specific people are called neurodivergent um, who have brain differences. And the activists online, the word really began with autism, but it has since extended out to all brain differences, clinical or otherwise. So this means all of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders. Mm-hmm. Now, I am a clinician who uses the DSM to diagnose mental health disorders. And I have had a vast amount of experience with truly debilitating, potentially life-ruining disorders. Mm. I've worked in inpatient psych with adolescents and adults, and I'm not willing to fluff over that for um, social media feelings. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? No, I know. And so in my career, I have not worked with autistic individuals who are um, profoundly impacted with the most challenging traits of autism, but I have um, clinical friends who do work with that population. And they're like, Teva, this is not just another way of being. This is a real life limiting condition in, in, in some ways. And we have made the spectrum so broad that when we're talking about autism, it's hard to know, well, what are we talking about? Right. Um, you know, and... And I do believe in, in mental health disorders because I work with them and I diagnose them and I see what they look like. Um, and that doesn't mean that the person is disordered and it doesn't, disorder doesn't mean that, that it wasn't started in some traumatic environment. Mm. Disorder implies what, what are we seeing now? What are the traits and symptoms that we're seeing now and how does it impact someone's functioning? And if it impacts it so much, so negatively that it reaches a level of what we call clinical significance and we have different ways of measuring that, that's when they get the diagnosis and it is a, it, it is a disorder. Yeah. And that's when the, it's when the efforts put into place to figure out what supports are needed so that they can be successful to the best of their abilities. Yes. And not just with autism, but any, you know, so autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder that will need supports and accommodations and parent training and, and skills to be learned. Mm -hmm. But the other disorders, the anxiety disorders, the depression disorders, then we are looking at how do we treat this? How do we aim to maybe even cure this? Right. You know, without a problem, without admitting that there's a problem, then why, what are we trying to solve? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, um, this, the, the fear of possibly hurting someone's feelings by using a particular word gets mm-hmm. more attention than the person who needs the assistance. And, yes. um, you know, that, so that goes to the post that you made on July 25th that says, you said, I'm going to go ahead and say something bold and true 
The right environment can cure mental illness. The right environment can cure behavioral problems. So having said that, there is a difference between what the illness is and what the behavioral problems are. And when it comes to people who are dealing with very severe autism to the point where they cannot live on their own, they might not remember things well, they will always need help or some support. Yep. It's not a matter of curing. It's more a matter of supporting, but they can Mm -hmm. succeed in the right environment and with the right support. And then on the flip side of that, you've got people who are struggling with maybe depression or anxiety, and they may be able to get to a place where they don't struggle with that anymore if their environments are changed. So can you give us a little bit of um, insight there and kind of what you were thinking Sure. Yes. Um, so I, I don't really believe in cures for autism. I'm not of that camp that, that, that believes that, you know, we just haven't done the right diet or the right, whatever. I don't really involve myself in that. I know some people do. And these are not arguments that I really, they're not debates that I get into. I, I just simply, I have not seen proof of an autism cure. Um, but and so when I was writing that post, I wasn't referring to autism, but I but with behavioral challenges, no matter what the diagnosis is, or maybe there's no diagnosis, with behavioral challenges, when you change the environment, whether it's the relational environment between um, parent and child, or or child and peers, or you change the the physical environment, you take the child out of the. <laughs> I'm so dramatic sometimes with this, but you take the child out of the the prison, (laughs) right? They're going to do better. Um, Or or maybe it's the sensory environment. You take the child out of the overwhelming social and sensory environment, and you're not going to see them hitting themselves in the Mm. face. You're not going to see them um, uh, not cooperating. You're not going to see them... um, throwing things and banging their head on the ground. These are responses. These are behavioral responses, oftentimes to an environment that is misaligned. And and the social environment is part of that, meaning relational dynamics. Mm -hmm. And so as therapists, we teach parents how to change that relational dynamic. And that's part of our work. You know, when a child comes to therapy, what we are doing in that 50 minutes a week is not magic. The majority of our work that really makes changes for these kids behaviorally and, and mood-wise is what we teach the parents to do and change. Mm. So that's what I had in mind with that post primarily. And then, as you said, depression, anxiety, that is often fueled by a, an environment that is toxic or problematic. Think of when we are at the wrong job. You know, many of us have worked in jobs that were just so toxic for so many reasons, and we had symptoms of depression, hopelessness, insomnia, stomach aches, um, you know, physical changes, weight gain, weight loss. But the minute we leave that toxic environment, we get better. We are cured. Yeah, the weight lifted and our whole entire demeanor changes and our body feel hopeful again. Yes. It's the reason why you're going to be depressed in prison. Mm. 
and living out in the country, riding horses, you know, skipping around the lake with your child, you're not, <laughs> you're most likely not going to be depressed. This is a massive overgeneralization. No, I get what you're saying. And there are, you get yeah. it. And there are other reasons for depression, but just, you know, on a very basic surface, if you're living in a four foot square room with um, concrete walls, you're going to be depressed as opposed to living out in, in the beautiful countryside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The environment matters, no doubt. It matters. And so even with autism, even with, with an, a condition that, that will not be cured, in my opinion, at this day in July 2023, um, I don't have, we don't have evidence of a cure as far as my understanding goes, but we can reduce the most challenging uh, traits of the condition so much so that for some people who maybe had a mild presentation, they might not even meet diagnostic criteria any longer. Wow. Yeah, that's so powerful. And that, that is what I think, yeah, that's what I think sometimes people mean by cure. I don't truly know, but um, these people are still autistic. They still can be observed as having autism to the well-trained eye. They might still have struggles, but the struggles might not meet the level of clinical mm -hmm. significance mm -hmm. to warrant a diagnosis. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then again, I'll just reiterate that there is a spectrum and there is highly functioning to the, to the untrained eye. Doesn't look like there's any other concerns under the surface. Mm -hmm. And then there's the kind to the very end, which is, you know, some of the kids I worked with who will probably never live on their own or independently mm -hmm. and who almost have like a, the, the speech of a toddler. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's pretty severe, yeah, very severe. It is. And so that's the spectrum we're dealing with. Yeah. And the neurodiversity paradigm, if people want to learn more, I recommend they, they Google these terms with the name Dr. Nick Walker. He has a couple of uh, really great blog piece explaining the, the, the proper use of these terms. And he is someone who is very much in this movement and, and supports the neurodiversity paradigm and, and queer theory and all of those things. Um, but he gives a really great blog post about the proper use of these different terms. And the neurodiversity paradigm really views, really does not see pathology and really views the, the different manifestations of what I would call a disorder as truly just kind of mm. another way of being. And it, it's very a social justice framework. And the neurodiversity movement is a social justice movement. And as much as I appreciate movements for justice of any kind, and human rights and disability rights and all of these things are very important. I do think that some things can go too far and they can be quite extreme. And the neurodiversity paradigm really doesn't see disorders as disorders. And as a licensed clinician who has worked in inpatient psych, I just cannot disagree mm. with that more. Yeah. Um, moving forward, you know, what is the mission of Rebel Parents? And kind of your goals, you know, what do you hope to accomplish with your platform? Sure. Um, the mission of, of Rebel Parents on Instagram is really to give permission to parents to kind of buck the mainstream. No matter who it's coming from, no matter what their, you know, political beliefs are, political leanings, whatever, 
we're all kind of tired of this culture war stuff. What I want to give parents space for is to really follow their intuition and really follow their values and understand that we don't have to participate in these institutions, particularly institutions of education, that are failing our children and failing us as families. And we don't have to keep towing the line on some of these cultural narratives that are pretty extreme. We don't have to keep tiptoeing around the truth. We don't have to um, silence ourselves out of fear of, um, you know, cancel culture and these kinds of things. I just kind of want to give parents space to be who they were maybe like five or 10 years ago (laughs) Mm -hmm. when we had just basic shared pro-human values. Mm -hmm. I want to let parents know that they don't have to ignore their own gut and intuition about what is right for their particular child. I want to give them permission to parent their particular Mm. child. And whatever that looks like for them, I try to speak from a place of what I know as a clinician and what I know from a point of child development. But, you know, just kind of do what's best for your family and stop apologizing. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Someone who I actually respect, um, they had the an opinion that um, to homeschool your child was like racist and, and white supremacist. And I'm thinking to myself, wait, I'm homeschooling my child, not because of anything that has to do with race or white supremacy, but because of her individual differences, she would be absolutely crushed in the public mm. schools. And, and I'm homeschooling my child because it aligns with my values. I don't value what is, what is being taught in the public schools. Therefore, why would I send my child? And it just really, it just really illuminated for me how far down we have gone in this kind of extremism. Mm. And I was so glad to find a clip from Bell Hooks, Bell Hooks and, um, oh my gosh, who was she speaking with? Cornell West, and I have it pinned on my reels if anyone's interested. And Bell Hooks and Cornell West, who are not conservative, racist, white supremacists by any (laughs) means, um, here they are promoting homeschool, particularly for black children, Mm -hmm. because public school is so violent and so harmful. And if we want for many kids, and if we want these black children to have a chance we really need to to raise them and educate them in nurturing the nurturing environment of the home. Right. Bell Hooks said it will not be found in the public school. Mm. And so what I want for my page is I want people from all political backgrounds, religious backgrounds, um, cultural leanings who are parents to feel empowered to parent the child they have and to parent aligned with their own values. Yeah, that's wonderful, Tava. Thank you. Let us know where people can find you. Sure. Yes. Okay. So people can find me on my website, which is tavajohnstone.com. I have my contact info on the website. They can shoot me an email if they have a question or 
Um, if they want to meet with me for coaching or consulting, I do offer that, that they can find on the website and people can find my, um, online course, a therapist guide to homeschool on my website. Thank you for agreeing to do this and being here with me. Thank you, Missy. It has been an absolute pleasure. I love talking about this and I'm honored to talk with you about this of all people. So thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for listening. To learn more about guests on the podcast and to stay up to date on how they are showing up to make the world a better place for children and families, please check the show notes. To become a part of the great educational awakening and to keep up with my latest writings, offerings, and workshops, be sure you're signed up for my Substack newsletter. You can also follow along on social media at Let Em Go Barefoot. That's L-E-T-E-M-G-O Barefoot. If you are new to homeschooling, new to unschooling, or are simply unschooling curious, but not sure where to start, we now have a beautiful 43-page downloadable guide that walks you through the how and why of self-directed education and child-led learning, as well as responses to common questions and concerns around academics, motivation, college, community, and more. You can find a link to purchase your copy in the show notes. Thank you so much for your support. As always, stay curious, stay connected, and stay aware. Until next time.